in To Kill a Mockingbird, Scout Finch reflected on her father Atticus's wise advice. He said, you never really know a man until you stand in his shoes and walk around in them. Hi, I'm Katie M. Shannon, and this is In Their Shoes, a podcast dedicated to uncovering lives that have been lost to time. My goal is to share the stories of everyday men, women, and children who didn't make it into the history books. They may have been forgotten, but now they will live again as we explore their lives and say their names. I believe that through the power of story, we can build an understanding of the past that will help heal our present and pave the way for a better future. One story at a time, one person at a time. Today, instead of walking in the shoes of a single person, we will take a walk together down one block in one of America's oldest and most unique cities. Now let's travel back in time to New Orleans in the 1860s and 1870s. Let's stand on Toulouse Street between Bourbon and Dauphine Streets in the historic French Quarter. This block was home to performers at the Opera House, um, a mansion of a wealthy plantation owner, a brothel, a pawnbroker, a loan office, a saloon and coffee house, a leather and shoe shop, a private school for girls, a junk shop, and a secondhand store. Now, let's set the scene with some newspaper accounts from that era. March 10th, 1861. This was written to the New Orleans Daily True Delta by a man who signs himself as one who has seen the elephant. This is a reference to um, someone who has never been to New Orleans before, who perhaps comes from a more rural area, someone who has not seen the sights, who has not been around, who has now come to this great metropolis and seen sights he never before could have imagined or experienced. So this is the perspective of the person who wrote this in to the newspaper. He writes, to one who has frequent occasions to pass Toulouse Street, particularly in the neighborhood of Royal Street, an opportunity is offered of testing the powers of his olfactory organs. The odor emanating from that quarter, the fountainhead, gradually diffuses itself through the murmuring brook, uh, uh, also known as a gutter, along Toulouse Street. An English lady in one of her letters from Paris on a similar subject says, I remember being very much amused last year when landing at Calais at the answer made by an old traveler to a novice who was making his first voyage. What a dreadful smell! And he will be answered by the veteran sufferers. Monsieur, c'est l'odeur de Toulouse. It's the smell of Toulouse. 
in the name of the veteran sufferers who have been obliged to accustom their senses and submit to the sufferings this evil entails upon them, in pity to the novices who may have to go through their term of probation, in the name of delicacy, modesty, and decency, let us pray, brethren, for relief from this abomination. Another newspaper account states, as a young lady was on her way home from the opera house last evening, she stepped on one of those mischievous bricks called dandy traps. We heard the squirting, which sounded very natural, having worn white trousers under the same circumstances, but it was quite strange to hear, weep, Jiminy Crickets, I knew it would come, coming from the lips of the young lady and the shivering which ensued. We appreciated the feeling of the fair one and suppressed a giggle. There's also this from the Times, um, the New York, New Orleans Daily Times of June 15th, 1862. The lovers of good living will see with satisfaction that that favorite resort for such indulgence, Victor's in Toulouse Street, reopens its hospitable doors today. The luxuries of life in their due season are always obtainable at Victor's and they are always well served up, which is a great point. Then we have from um, Friday, February 11th, 1870, in the Daily Picayune, pursuing the subject of the Toulouse Street burglary. It is necessary to state that the keeper of the coffee house on the corner of Bourbon and Toulouse Streets says that the Saturday night of the robbery, one of the burglars was in earnest conversation with the beat officer the police officer, for several hours, and that during this time they drank together repeatedly. From his description of the burglar, it could have been no other than Jess Allen, alias Black Jess. The inference from such an intimacy is inevitable. Either the officer was crimin criminally negligent of his duty or he was bribed. From that fact, that he made no discovery of the burglary from Saturday night until Monday morning, the latter supposition is the most feasible one. And finally, um, another example of Toulouse Street at its finest um, comes from the Daily Picayune, March 18th, 1859, and it is entitled, Bold Attempt to Rob a Lady. A gentleman and his wife were going down Bourbon Street to the opera Wednesday evening to hear the fascinating Piccolomini win near the corner of Toulouse Street, the lady felt her arm seized by a man. She drew back instinctively, and the fellow passed on. The thing had been so sudden that the husband had not perceived it, and was incredulous when his wife, recovering from her surprise, told him of it. He could not imagine that any wrong was intended, and supposed that the man brushing past her had accidentally touched her arm. As he was laughing at her imaginary fears, that daring thief who had stolen up softly behind them as they walked again seized the lady's arm, but unfortunately shook off the grasp before the gentleman could free his other arm and took to his heels. The sparkling brilliance on a valuable bracelet the lady wore on her wrist were the booty he aimed at, but luckily for the lady, could not snatch off in his daring attempt. So as you can see, Toulouse Street was a place of culture because it was just adjacent to the famous New Orleans Opera House, which was located on the corner of Toulouse and Bourbon. 
it was a place of wealth where plantation owners and Creole aristocrats lived. It was also smelly and dangerous with poor infrastructure and an abundance of robberies. The most notable mansion on Toulouse Street, now known as the Olivier House, was constructed in 1839 by French architects J.N.B. and J.I. de Puyi. The brick and stucco building was three stories tall and contained over 20 rooms. The St. James Parish plantation owners, um, the Duparc and the Cool families, who were of an elite sugar cane plantation owning background, they owned the property for 90 years. The house underwent extensive renovations in the early 1850s. At the time of the joint Duparc and Lacool purchase of the house, it only had one entry, a carriageway. The family converted this into a central hallway and then constructed a more formal entrance with a marble door frame and marble steps fronting the street. There was a separate lot purchased by the family and it was turned into a courtyard garden. These additional improvements cost around $6,000 at the time, a considerable sum, and were deemed necessary due to the extensive household occupying the property, for it was an extended household of um, a brother and sister and children and grandchildren. The Civil War brought dramatic changes to this Toulouse Street home. As federal gunboats approached New Orleans, the LaCoule family fled to central Louisiana, leaving the house boarded up and empty. The city was quickly taken over by Union troops who needed lodgings. Lieutenant Russell, a Signal Corps officer, and several other fellow officers took possession of the house. They believed that the owner of the house was a member of the state legislature and had participated in the secession convention and was now serving in the Confederate Army. This was certainly the case for Emile LaCoule, However, the house was actually owned by his mother, Elizabeth Duparc Lacoule, who claimed French citizenship through her father and husband. As many as 50 soldiers occupied the home from October 1862 through the end of March or beginning of April 1863. They wreaked havoc in the house and inflicted extensive damage to the fine linen, furniture, upholstery, plaster work, and portraits present. When Elizabeth and her daughter's family were finally able to return to the house, many of the marble mantles were broken, the carpets were worn and torn, and the armoires were broken and their contents removed. The soldiers also helped themselves to the wine cellar and stores. Elizabeth LaCoule's granddaughter saw Marie Laveau on Toulouse Street and recalled certain practices of voodoo practitioners. She wrote, to do harm or cause illness or the death of someone they disliked, they would sprinkle certain white powders mixed with chicken feathers, hair, and some other absurd things on the doorsteps. The person finding these signs at their door would be terrorized and get into trouble. This, this knowledge that Laura LaCoule shared is reflected in newspaper accounts of the time. At three o'clock in the morning on January 3rd, 1883, Mary Smith threw coal oil on P. Geniza's doorstep, number 97 Toulouse Street, just across from the LaCool mansion. Her purpose was, quote, voodooing him, and she was sentenced to 30 days in jail or a fine of $25. 
The LaCool Mansion was by far the most grand home on the block, but the street reflected the diversity inherent in an older section of an urban port city. Now remember, within a one block radius, you could find private residences, rental apartments, storefronts, the performer's entrance to the French Opera House, a pawnbroker, pawnbroker and loan office, a saloon, a coffee house, leather and shoe shop, the Orleans Institute, which was a respectable girls' school, a junk shop, secondhand store, and a brothel. Crime was always present, and shady characters frequented the street, even at such an important and heavily trafficked intersection as that of Bourbon and Toulouse. In front of the French Opera House, the street was often rutted, full of mud, and in disrepair. Pickpockets and thieves took advantage of the crowds departing the Opera House in the evenings. Arson, intoxication, robbery, stabbings, shootings, assault, larceny, and disturbing the peace all took place only steps away from many elegant mansions. On the opposite side of Toulouse, the unscrupulous Philippe Roquette ran an operation the Picayune cleverly dubbed the Old Curiosity Shop a general depository for all sorts of plunder. Roquette dealt in goods of questionable provenance brought to him by some of the seedier characters of the old French Quarter. He specialized in goods that were hot and needed to be disposed of quickly and discreetly. Captain L. Malone and Special Officer Pearson raided Roquette's shop on February 5th, 1872 and discovered a large lot of pipes, a lady's fur boa and tippet, 10 silver watches, fancy boxes, razors, boots, shoes, and gaiters, all goods presumed stolen, some of which could be traced to rightful owners. According to police, Roquette buys and sells everything and asks no questions and takes no note of from whom he buys. Just a few days later, Roquette faced even more scrutiny when he was charged with buying a lot of clothes stolen from Mr. J. Stywell. He was locked up in the third precinct jail for a time. Roquette operated the shop for many years and always seemed to scarcely be out of one scrape before he found that he has rushed headlong into another. As you go up to Luce from Bourbon towards Dauphine, you are arriving at a place um, that would be considered a hotbed of criminal activity and arrests. There was a saloon on one side and at 106 Toulouse, the property adjacent to um, the LaCoule mansion, a brothel. In 1865, Hannah Peters, a black landlady of the brothel on Dauphine at Toulouse Street, came forward with accusations against Lieutenant Governor Gastonel. Mary Frances and Josephine Durand, colored prostitutes in her brothel, were arrested and sentenced by Recorder Gastonel to up to one month imprisonment. While waiting in the cell at the second district lockup, a man with a black mustache approached them and asked Mary Frances to give him her gold chain in order to obtain her release. Meanwhile, Hannah Peters appeared at the court in an attempt to get her girls out of jail. A man approached her and offered to get the girls released for $25 each. After Hannah said she only had $20, the man agreed to accept that amount in exchange for the release of the prostitutes. Within two hours, Mary Frances and Josephine were back out on the street. Three weeks before, 
the same man had gotten several other girls out of prison for Hannah Peters for the sum of $10. The man was believed to be Recorder Gastonel's brother, the Lieutenant Governor of the state of Louisiana. In the late 1860s and early 1870s, Elizabeth Syfax, a Toulouse Street prostitute, was another regular in Recorder Gastonel's second district court. She stole $300 in greenbacks and another $300 in gold from F. Ferrier, a visitor to the brothel where she lived and worked. Mr. Ferrier had been, quote, sleeping off the effects of a debauch at the time of the robbery. Four other prostitutes were arrested as accessories. Two years later, Syfax and a friend were at it again, drugging James Henderson while he spent the night in their house and robbing him of $105. In 1872, Elizabeth Syfax and two accomplices, described by the Picayune as, quote, dusky damsels from Toulouse and Burgundy streets, were charged with feloniously entering the pockets of two white men. That same year, a policeman was attacked and wounded on the corner of Toulouse and Dauphine streets. At 10 o'clock in the evening, Officer F. Patterson was stabbed with a dirk knife in the right side near his kidneys. Officer Patterson identified his assailant as Richard Delmore. Delmore and a prostitute named Lizzie Smith were arrested and charged with, quote, murderous assault. The corner was still a haven for prostitutes in 1880 when Elizabeth LeCool, the mansion owner's nearest neighbors, were Lucy Rock, age 18, and Alice Davis, age 20, black women listed as courtesans in a census report. Lucy Rock had been arrested several years before, charged with larceny after taking $55 from a man presumably seeking her services. By 1885, the Picayune called for the demolition of the property at 106 Toulouse Street, a building in dangerous condition and inhabited by thieving prostitutes of the worst kind. Directly across the street from the LaCoule mansion and a few steps from the brothel was the Orleans Institute, an academy for young ladies. It was established in the residence of Chloe Grandchamp Delpouche, a grand dame of Creole society. Madame Delpouche was born in Santiago, Cuba in 1807 and arrived in New Orleans when she was five years old. Her father, Francois Grandchamp, shared the honor of being the first licensed pharmacist in the United States with Louis DeFillo, who practiced out of the building now known as the Old Pharmacy Museum, which you can visit today. Grandchamp first practiced as a pharmacist in Saint-Domingue, present-day Haiti. Fleeing the island after the revolution, he set up shop in Santiago, Santiago Cuba, under the authorization of the Faculty of Medicine of Havana. In 1811, Grandchamp opened a drugstore on the corner of Royal and St. Peter Streets in the French Quarter in a building purchased with Dr. Yves Lemonnier. This is now a very famous building and much photographed. He later sold his interest to Dr. Lemonnier and established his own shop at 501 Royal Street, only a block away from Pharmacy de Philo. Chloe Grandchamp, married Alcide Delpouche, an eminent apothecary and prominent citizen who left her a widow before the age of 40. Her family was one of many Creole aristocrats left in reduced circumstances during the Civil War, perhaps the impetus behind the girls' school, which was begun in 1862. The Delpouche daughters, who married 
continued to live at home and they ran the school there for at least three decades into the early 1890s. So what would happen to Toulouse Street as the 20th century approached? Historian and geographer Richard Campanella explains it best. American cities changed after the Civil War, he writes in his Bourbon Street, A History, and New Orleans was no exception. The metropolis's inner core, traditionally home to a wide range of classes and all three of the antebellum city's social castes, which were free white, free people of color, and enslaved black, grew congested, industrialized, anonymous, rafish, and less appealing as a place to live. We can conclude that what he surmises is correct based just upon the newspaper accounts we, we just heard. Now Campanella continues, prosperous families, many of whom had lost their fortunes in, to the war, departed the aged streets and crumbling mansions of the French Quarter for new neighborhoods developing uptown. Middle-class families wanted out too, and with them went many merchants. Campanella goes on to explain how the change in the social order had an impact on the cityscape and who you would find walking down Toulouse Street. Emancipation, he writes, also motivated the moving. The main reason why such a remarkably economically and racially mixed population commingled in the antebellum French Quarter was because chattel slavery and codified discrimination so effectively segregated the classes and castes and economic, political, and social ambits that additional segregation and residential settlement patterns was simply unnecessary. A wealthy white family living on Bourbon Street in the 1820s, for example, would not have felt socially threatened by neighbors who were working class free people of color or by the slaves living in the back alley because everyone knew that their spatial proximity bore zero relationship to their social propinquity. Emancipation changed all this. Poor black neighbors would not present a threat to this um, pardon me, would now present a threat to the social prestige of the wealthier white family next door. Whites increasingly viewed non-white neighbors with displeasure and in time would seek legal means to resegregate the races as much as possible. For now, however, they mostly fled uptown. So Campanella eloquently explains why around the time of the Civil War and within the decade after, you would find someone like Elizabeth LaCoule of great aristocratic Creole background, a plantation owner, incredibly wealthy, living in a 20-room mansion with a brothel next door, occupied by um, Creole women of color, some of whom may have formerly been enslaved, others who were free women of color before the war. And why across the street, you could have a coffee house um, with people who were of many different shades partaking in, in um, liquors and coffee and um, games of cards. None of this had been threatening to the Lacouls and to rich Creole aristocrats and plantation owners like them prior to the war because the social structure was in order. 
and living in close proximity to people of different races or socioeconomic backgrounds was not seen as a problem because in their eyes, everyone knew who they were and where they belonged. After the Civil War, everything changed in so many ways in this Creole city. And in one of the ways, race became the defining factor of prominence, uh, cultural belonging, and where you wanted to live, or at least where some people wanted to live. And this led to the decreased property values in the French Quarter. It led to people of um, high economic, you know, socially mobile or wealthy citizens leaving the French Quarter for uptown neighborhoods and large mansions um, further uptown and leaving the French Quarter in a state of poverty and disrepair and um, a great deal of crime, which would cause the deterioration of the French Quarter and of Toulouse Street, which we were just now profiling, uh, until the 20th century when activists began to recognize the value of the French Quarter. But that's a story for another day. Right now, we're going to make our way down, back down to Loose Street toward Bourbon, where the French Opera House stood. And the destruction of that important landmark, the old French Opera House, was the death knell in many ways for Creole society and for the French Quarter of that time. When it burned, it took with it what remained of the French Quarter's cultural relevance and its, its panache, its, its draw. There were people who were still coming from uptown to see plays, to see opera, to participate in the culture and the, the um, importance of that architectural site that now had no reason to return to the French Quarter. So Toulouse Street and all its colorful glory of the 1860s and 1870s would be in greatly reduced circumstances as the 20th century approached. Thanks for listening to episode 7 of In Their Shoes. I hope you enjoy taking a walk with me along Toulouse Street from Bourbon to Dauphine in New Orleans French Quarter of the 1860s and 1870s. I've been a professional historian for 16 years. Each story I tell is extensively researched using primary source documents. For show notes and a transcript of this episode, you can find me at www.katymshannon.com. That's K-A-T-Y-M-Shannon. Or follow me on Instagram at katymshannonauthor, Katie with a Y. Also, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single story. And leave a review telling me if you enjoy it or if there's something else that you would like to hear about, a subject of interest, would love to get feedback. 
see you next week when we put on a new pair of shoes and walk around in them. Thanks.